How's everybody doing? Good. Everybody's awake? Glad to hear it. Hey, uh, one of these things I want to tell you guys about myself. I hate it when phones go off and stuff. No. Great. We'll wait. No, just kidding. That's terrible. Uh, one of the things I... See ya, Elder Mark. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I can get really distracted. By, no, that's not it. Uh, I'm a great dancer. Did you guys know that? I am an amazing dancer. Lessons since age four. And uh, you guys are laughing. That's funny. Uh, now, I could say that. Now, last night we were at... Uh, Christine and I went to the Branding Iron. Anybody been to the Branding Iron? Don't raise your hand. That's embarrassing. It was our, it was our uh, high school reunion from the, from the 80s. And so I was expecting tables and talking to people. And actually, there was just a lot of dancing. And uh, I was dancing with my wife, and we stopped fairly soon because I kept stepping on her feet. So even though I could say... This has a point that relates to James. Even though I could say I'm a great dancer and I've been having lessons since I was four, the fact of the matter is my life didn't demonstrate, doesn't demonstrate that I have any ability in the area of dancing. My, lo- my wife actually loves to dance and some, sometimes we dance and I just sort of stand there and, you know, she dances. So, so the, the point is we can say things with our words, that aren't always true. That aren't always true in our life. And the same thing is true in faith. And I think to, in, in, in the Christian life. And I think James today is really addressing that. Addressing what do you say compared to what your life produces. So today I think we come to what I believe is, is the heart of the book of James. Both this week and next we're going to be in James chapter 2 verses 14 to 26. This week we're going to look at verses 14 to 20, and next week we'll back up to 20 through 26. So 20 is this crossover verse. In 20, 14 through 20, James is going to make these profound statements about the relationship between faith and works. And then in 20 through 26, he's going to give us two Old Testament examples about the relationship between faith and works. What that really looks like. The, the, the saying you have faith and then the, the works that are produced in your life. What, two, the two examples, just for a heads up, and I would encourage you, look ahead in your Bibles. Read again Genesis chapter 22, because he's going to be talking about Abraham. Abraham and his sacrifice of Isaac. We should be familiar with that. You might also want to read in Joshua chapter 2. He's going to talk about this this lady that you may be less familiar with than Abraham, since we just spent a lot of time on Abraham. This lady named Rahab. So Genesis chapter 22, Joshua 2. James is going to point us there as he gives examples of this relationship between faith and work. So over the next two weeks, in these passages, I, I would just invite you to consider that relationship. What is the relationship between faith and works? And it's my prayer my prayer and hope that through this study, every person here will gain a greater understanding of their own faith in Jesus Christ. They'll be able to determine, we, 
us, we'll be able to determine, is our faith genuine or not? As a pastor, I believe it's really my number one responsibility to make it clear to you what the Bible says about genuine faith. That no one who regularly steps through these doors, comes into this church, would be able to to leave, deceiving themselves into believing that they have true faith when in fact they don't. This is really the most serious question that we consider as a people, as believers in Jesus Christ. Is our faith genuine? Is our faith real? Not based on what our current culture says about faith, about Christianity, not based on a book you've read, not even based on a sermon, but based on the Word of God. So what I'd invite you this morning to pray with me, that we as individuals and as a congregation would, uh, to quote James chapter 1, verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. That that would be true for us this morning as we hear God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that you would open our hearts. Open our hearts. Lord, you've implanted your word in our heart, and we're going to receive that word as we look at James this morning. I I pray that that it would be clear to each person here what James is saying, that no one would go away deceived, that everyone would understand and be able to discern, is my faith, is my trust in Jesus Christ genuine, and is it what the Bible describes as faith? Lord, I pray that. As we look at your word this morning, in Christ's name. I only have one point this morning. It's a little different. Oftentimes I'll have different points. I have no fill in the blanks. It's all written out in your notes. The point of the sermon is really the title of the sermon. And it's really the answer to the question, what's the relationship between faith and works? Faith produces works. That's all I have to say this morning. Faith Produces work. And I'm going to take some time and say it, but faith produces works. We begin in verse 14. James writes, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? I attempted to illustrate. What use is it, my brethren, if you say you can dance and you can't dance? There's no dancing involved. You just look stupid. James is saying the same thing about faith. What use is it? You say you have faith, but have no works. Can that faith save him? James is opening with these two rhetorical questions. First, what use is it if someone says they have faith when their life has no works? And the clear answer is, no use. No use whatsoever. He makes the same point in even more dramatic fashion in verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, faith with no works, is dead. And and just so we're clear, that the Greek word for dead means, interestingly enough, dead. No life whatsoever. And because it's dead, James says in verse 20, that faith apart from works is useless. Faith without works is useless. And you know what the 
meaning of the Greek word for useless is, without use, useless, no use. There's no use for it. So I hope we're getting James's point here. Faith without works is dead. It's useless, meaningless, not real, fake. And that brings us to the second rhetorical question of, in verse 14. Can, can that, James says, can that useless dead faith save him? And the answer again is clearly no. It's faith that doesn't save it doesn't justify us before God. It atones for nothing. It, it means nothing. Paul said in, it says in Ephesians 2.8, maybe you've read this verse, memorized it, and we're going to talk more about the relationship Paul and James have next week, so hold on for that. But Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith. Well, not this faith that James is talking about. This faith has no life. It's useless. It doesn't save because it isn't real. You could say it's non-existent. It's something different from what the Bible says faith is. James is giving us a picture of someone who claims that they have faith. I have faith. I, I trust in God. I love God. He's giving us a picture of someone that speaks like that. He says, what use is it, my brother? And if someone says he has faith... What he's saying is this, it's possible to claim you have saving faith and have no real faith at all. Do we get that? Do we know that? Do we understand that? There are people who claim to have faith, but their faith is not real. It's dead and useless. Just because someone says they have faith, just because someone claims to be a Christian, a believer, a follower of Jesus, does not make it so. So the obvious question is, what makes it so? How do we know when faith is genuine? How do we know if biblical faith, faith that, that saves, exists in, in the heart and life of someone? And James' answer is, you look. You look at their works. At the end of verse 18, he says, I will show you my faith by my works. Faith produces works. You can determine genuine faith is present on the basis of whether works are present. And just so we're clear, James isn't alone in saying this. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, and he says it in other places too. We're going to look at one passage in length in a little bit. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 through 20, Jesus said, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every health, healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. In Scripture, this fruit is symbolic of, of what your life is producing, what's coming out, your, James would call, works, your actions, your deeds. When you see apples hanging from the limb of a tree, you say, that's an apple tree. How do you know? Because it has apples. It's simple. So if you see fruit, if you see works, that is the evidence of faith. If there's no fruit, there's no faith. 
Faith always produces fruit. Now, just so we're clear, James is not saying, and Jesus is not saying, that you need to add works to your faith in order to be saved. This is a major mistake. This is a big problem. And this is what a lot of Paul's writings are addressing, this particular mistake. Maybe you guys were with us when we studied Galatians. That was like the point of Galatians. You can't add, you don't need to add works to faith. James nowhere says that salvation is attained by works of any kind. But what James wants us to understand is the clear relationship between faith and works. James is saying faith will produce works. Faith in our hearts will be evident in the fruit in our lives. So the obvious question is this. What does this fruit, what do these works look like? What are we looking for? And I think we answered that, at least in part, last week. We talked about religion. Religion that was pure and undefiled before God. We talked about controlling our tongue. We talked about caring for the needy. We talked about being clean from the world and and not showing favoritism. And I think the key verse there in that we looked last week was chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. I think I believe when James is talking about works, he's talking about the works that fulfill the royal law, the works that fulfill the law of love, that law of freedom, that law of liberty, all tied together that we saw last week. The law, that law certainly includes loving God the Father, loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, your all your mind, and all your strength. But but it's clearly seen, it includes that love of God, but we can say we love God and And God himself says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And those commandments are clearly seen in in that second part of that, that royal law. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And who's your neighbor? Jesus answered that question with the parable of the Good Samaritan. If we had time, we'd go there, but hope we all remember it. Basically, the bottom line, saying your neighbor is any other person, whether it's your enemy, it's any other person, specifically a person you encounter who is in great need. So to love your neighbor means to love anyone, especially those in need. And so what does it mean to love someone? Paul answers that question for us in 1 Corinthians 13. We know it, we're not going to read it, don't have time for it. I just want to summarize, saying that, that loving our neighbor means we desire and we act in the best interest of them, their best interest. We desire, that's key, we'll get to that in a second, and we act in the best interest of the person we claim to love. Don't miss that desire part. Actions are important, but they have to flow from a heart full of love. Paul makes that clear in verse 3 of of chapter 13. Before he goes into the the description that we're all pretty familiar with, love is patient, love is kind, love is not rude, these aren't in order, it's long-suffering, it bears all things. Before he says that, he says this in verse 3, if I give away all I have, and, and, 
And if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. You get that? If I do the most sacrificial acts possible, including giving my life and have not love, I've gained nothing. It's worthless. Love is more than actions, Paul says. Otherwise, the royal law wouldn't be the law of love. It would be the law of do stuff. Look after your neighbor. Take care of people. Now, I just want you to understand that this, this, this action part, this is something you or I could accomplish without regards to motives or feelings. Love means there are actual feelings involved. It's, it's the heart. It comes from the heart. There's actually a work of God going on inside you. Feelings that can only come to those who've experienced the love and the grace and the mercy of God in their life. You can act in some, and we know this, you can totally act in someone else's best interests for your own selfish reasons. Whether it's pride, hoping that people will see you and look, feel better about you, wanting, wanting people to look up to you. Maybe it, maybe it looks good on your college apps, so I'm going to do that. But love acts for for the best interest of someone else, regardless of what's in it for you. Regardless of what's in it for you. So what do these acts, these works of love that biblical faith will produce look like? We could spend time listing them out, listing some of them out. I could point to examples of real love of neighbor in this very room. You want to talk to... Tom and Denise Allen about their recent adventures with their neighbor. If you haven't heard, it's an interesting story, a story of, of loving your neighbor. Talk to Dennis and Gloria Cates about their conversations with, with a, a terminally, terminally ill neighbor in their neighborhood and others. I'm grateful we have these and, and other examples in our congregation. And I want to spend some time looking at, at the example that J- James gives. James, in verse 15 and 16, gives an example of someone. Okay, so this is an example of someone who claims to have faith, but fails to have works. Notice what the work is. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What good is that? James uses an example from within the church. If a brother or sister is in great need, if you claim to have faith but fail to help a fellow believer in need, then what good is your faith? What good is that? When you've proven that your faith is useless, your faith is dead, your faith is not saving faith. So if you fail to help a fellow believer who's in need, then you're not saved. Can I say that? Did James really say that? Or is there a more comfortable way of interpreting this passage? Let's think about it for a minute. Suppose a sister in Christ, someone in this very room, is without clothes and daily food. She comes to your house. She's at your doorstep. Barely enough clothing to cover her herself. 
She has rags. She has no food. Literally no food for that day. No means to provide food for herself. She's starving. And you do nothing for her. Instead, you say to her, go in peace, be warmed and filled. James says, what good is that? What good is that for the person? They're going to starve to death. They're going to die. And what James is saying, because these words, what good is that for them, reflect back on the faith that that person had, that useless faith. What he's saying is that in the same way that your so-called faith doesn't save this person in their physical need, this so-called faith doesn't save you in your spiritual need. People who claim to be Christians and fail to help fellow believers who are in need are in fact not saved. You can try to find another interpretation to that passage, but I think the text is clear. According to James, someone who responds like this clearly has no biblical faith. And he, James, he's not alone in in saying that. It's the same thing the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? The implication is this, there's no way the love of God can be in you if you close your heart to a brother in need. You say you have faith, but there's no action, no love to show it, then it's clear evidence that there's no faith, therefore no salvation. Again, to be clear, we're we're not saved by our works of love and grace and mercy. When When James talks about works, he's not talking about them in the sense that they earn the favor of God. He's talking about them as evidence, as the natural outflow of faith, of true faith, faith in God. Works are the necessary evidence and outflow, the natural outflow of our salvation. Let me say that again. Works are the necessary evidence and natural outflow of our salvation. Showing that our faith is real. That we're saved by grace through faith. That kind of faith. Faith that has, has evidence. So when we love our neighbor, specifically our needy brother and sister in Christ, this is evidence of faith that produces, that has produced love in our hearts. Love that's demonstrated to those who have needs, those who have no way of paying us back. Those who don't deserve our love, deserve in quotes. This love in action is what the Bible calls mercy, giving what is undeserved. This is what we've received from God. Do you you realize that? We were and still continue to be in great need. We have no hope of salvation. We're literally spiritually starving to death. We have no ability to save ourselves. We have no way of gaining our own spiritual nutrients. And we don't deserve them at all. We're in rebellion against God, but God chose to extend mercy to us in Jesus Christ. 
And that mercy, when received, transforms our life, our heart. So if the mercy of God and the gospel has transformed your heart, then you will not see someone in need and do nothing. It's impossible. Mercy will flow from you. It's evidence of what's in your heart. In the same way that apples are are evidence of an apple tree. Tim Keller, he's pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, and he does in his church, I mean in his community and, and in other places, what's known as mercy ministry. He says this, Mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not an optional addition to being a Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the inevitable sign of true faith. If there is no mercy toward the poor, then there is no faith. Acts of mercy are evidence of salvation. Now, Tim Keller is good. But you want to know where he got this from? Where this is really clear? where it's clear that acts of love and mercy will flow from those who are saved, why Keller can say what what he said. Well, there's James, and James is, I think, important. There's also Jesus, Matthew 25. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is talking about future judgment. And he makes it so clear, crystal clear, that faith in Christ produces acts of mercy toward the poor. And if there is no mercy to the poor, then there is obviously no faith in Christ. Listen, I didn't put this, this is a long passage we're going to read. You can turn there in your Bibles, Matthew 25, or look up at the screen. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him... Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him, he will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We need to pause right there and and understand that that's God giving his mercy, his grace, and his love. Do you hear that? Blessed by the Father. The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is grace. The sheep are receiving the love, the grace, and the mercy of God. Now we need to see how that mercy is expressed in what they did. In their life. In verse 35, this is Jesus speaking. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when would we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus says that your response to the poor, to the needy, to the prisoner, 
the widow, to the orphan, was just as if you're responding to me, Jesus said. Now think about that. If you saw Christ hungry, would you feed him? If you saw Christ thirsty, would you give him drink? Absolutely. Of course. If we didn't, there'd be a lot of reason to question whether we love him, whether we know him, whether he's our savior, whether we are Christians, right? And what Jesus is saying is that what you have done to the least of these brothers is a reflection of what you do to me, to him. What a powerful image this is for the, for the sheep, this positive image of, wow, I didn't even realize it. I was feeding Jesus. I was giving Jesus a drink. It's awesome. But then comes to the, the opposite picture. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and didn't minister to you? Then he will answer to them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of these, the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice that they were addressing him as Lord. They thought he was their Lord. Those who ignore the poor do so as if they are ignoring Christ himself. And those who ignore Christ show that Christ is not real in their hearts. And eternal fire is their destination. Jesus' words. And again, let's be clear. It's not Jesus or James. They're not saying, do good deeds, do acts of mercy, care for the poor, clothe them, give them food and drink so that you will be saved. Jesus and James are saying, when Christ is in your heart, acts of mercy will flow toward those who are needy around you. You'll love Christ. And because you love Christ, you'll love those who are in need. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. This is so important. This fact that we do acts of mercy not as a means of salvation, but as an overflow, an outcome the evidence of our salvation. David Platt said, our giving to the poor is not motivated by guilt, as if we had to do these things. We're obligated to do these things. We have to in order to get something. No, we are not motivated by guilt as followers of Christ. We're motivated by the gospel, the power of Christ, faith in Christ as he lives in us, the overflow of our hearts when we're compelled to give to the poor where it's not our duty as much as it is our delight, where, we're, where we enjoy giving to the poor because we enjoy giving to Christ himself. Not out of guilt, out of delight, because we're able to give to Jesus through giving to the needy. So in, so in summary, the work that is produced by faith is the work of loving our neighbor. 
And this is seen clearly in our love and mercy towards those who are in need, specifically the poor. James then reinforces this argument. This argument that faith produces works by dialoguing with an an, an imaginary person. He says in verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Okay, you've got works, I've got faith. Good. This imaginary person is trying to separate the two. So often people try to separate the two. All they want to talk, if there are no works in their life, all they want to talk about is faith. If they really don't have faith, they, all they want to talk about is works. Some people have love, some people don't. Some people show mercy, some people don't. Some people have works, some people have faith. Some people give to the needy, some people don't. And James says, no. There's no way you can separate the two. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Again, he'll demonstrate that he has faith prior by the works he does. The works don't produce faith, they demonstrate faith. The works don't gain us salvation, they demonstrate we're saved. Faith without works is useless. It's no good to anyone, including yourself, because it doesn't save. And this is where James makes very clear what faith is not. And we need to get this. We need to get this. He says, faith is not mere intellectual assent. It's not just agreeing to some set of truths in your your brain. It's not just a set of things that you believe to be true, powerful Stuff, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Remember, James is writing to early Christians who were mostly Jewish. And every good Jewish man or woman knew what was called the the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's really, James isn't saying you believe that there's one God. He's basically saying you believe in all the truths about God. James says, great. That's awesome. Good job, everybody. But hey, the the demons believe that. So you say you believe, but the reality, demons believe as well. Demons believe in the existence of God, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the presence of heaven and hell. They believe that only Christ is able to save. Demons believe all those things and more. They believe all the right things. They're not stupid. They don't even believe in faith. They know it. They've experienced it. And their belief, their faith for the... For those words are related. You might think, oh, belief, that's different than faith. Well, the, the Greek words are almost the same. Pisto is... Faith, pistoa, is belief, or reverse those. But their, their, their belief, their faith, is useless. It's right. It's in their brain. It's believe the true stuff, but it's useless. And I fear that there are countless men and women who believe just like Demons. Their faith consists only of this intellectual assent to a set of facts. 
There may even be people in the room here today that have all the right beliefs about God, all the right beliefs about Jesus, but don't have a faith that saves. Because saving faith isn't just mere intellectual, ticking off a set of facts. And neither is it an emotional response, just so we're clear. What demons have is emotional as well. We see that. Even the demons believe, and what? They shudder. They tremble. They're emotionally affected by the reality of God's existence. They have an experience. Biblical faith is not merely an emotional response. How many people base their eternal security, their understanding of faith, on their their feelings at any given moment in time? Our feelings about God. Well, well, I feel this way. I feel that way about God. I don't feel that. Faith is not mere intellectual assent. It's not a list of things you believe. And faith is not simply an emotional response. You can have both of those and still not, and, and, and be on the same plane as the demons, James says. Faith involves willful obedience. That's James's point. You know faith? If you know faith, if you have faith, you'll show faith. Not just by what you think or feel, but by what you do. Faith produces works. Now, I'm not saying, and James isn't saying, that what we believe in our minds and what we feel in our hearts isn't important. Our emotions, our intellect are, are extremely important. Our mind and our, 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 our thoughts. But if faith is limited just to those two realms, our, our, our mind and our emotions, and it avoids this willful obedience, then, then it's not faith. Because real faith acts. And those actions are seen in how we love our neighbor. Specifically, our neighbor in need. So I hope we all get James's point. Faith produces works. Now as we turn to personal application, we need to be careful. It's, it's, so, it's so in us to want to jump right to the works. Isn't it? You might think, okay, I need to spend more time actively seeking how to love my neighbor. Those who are in need. I need to figure out what they need and I need to meet their needs. I need to find out who has needs and lovingly meet those needs. This may mean giving sacrificially to someone in your life who's lost a job. This may mean joining this foster care program that we talked about last week that Young lady came and shared about the foster system in Riverside County, caring for orphans. It may mean volunteering at a, a homeless shelter. It may mean sponsoring some, some kids overseas who have, have, have no income through Compassion International or some other organization. It may mean spending time. It's not always about finances. It may mean spending time with, with a shut-in, someone who can't get out. And it always means, it always means the most loving thing you can possibly do for someone and that share with them the faith, the, the love and the mercy that Jesus Christ has bestowed upon you. Share with them who their Savior is. All of that is, all of that is crucial. All of that 
we all should be doing. But remember the title of the sermon and, and James's point. Faith produces worth, works. Faith comes first. I don't want anyone leaving this place thinking that, that, that my point, that James's point, was, was that they do more works. That's not the point. The point is, if you've received salvation, the free gift of eternal life, if your faith is real, then you will be doing more works. So the ultimate application, and this is where we started, and this is where we will finish. The ultimate application is in the area of faith. Can you discern whether your faith is genuine or not? As you think about your life, is there evidence that your faith is real? It's biblical faith. It's the kind of faith that James is talking about. And if not, the application is not to start doing works to prove your faith. The application is to realize that up until this point, your faith or your so-called faith has been useless. Useless to the world because it has produced no benefit for anyone and useless to yourself because it cannot save your soul. So if that's the case, then your only application is to cry out to God to give you saving faith. Faith that surrenders itself completely to Jesus Christ. Faith that receives all that God has to offer you. That receives the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness provided for us in Jesus Christ. Faith that results in actual transformation of your life. You become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Cry out to God to give you true faith. As you examine your life. As you examine your life up against what James says. Up against what Jesus says. Up against what Scripture says. Is your life producing the works that God says will come of a life that truly has faith? If not, cry out to God. He's the only one that can bestow that kind of... You can't earn it. Not to jump into the works. Again, the works are evidence and the natural outflow. They're not the earning of any kind of faith. Cry out to God. And I would encourage you to to not stop. Don't stop crying out to God until you receive that faith that produces works, until your heart becomes transformed. Don't stop crying out to God until you're overwhelmed by His love and His grace and His mercy in your life, until you can't help but go out and show love and grace and mercy to the people in your world, especially those you encounter who have great needs. I hope that's clear. I hope that's clear to us. I hope we can discern, is my faith real? Do I have a love? Not a guilt, not a duty, but a love for the people in my world. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you that you loved us. Thank you that you've given us your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. Thank you that you've given us joy and happiness in our lives, Lord. And I, I pray 
that we would that in our lives that would be demonstrated as we reach out to, to those around us, Lord. And for those that, that are saying to themselves, even now, I don't know. I don't know if I have that faith, Lord. I haven't seen that in my life. I don't really care about the people in my world, Lord. I pray that you would, that you would meet them and you would not let them go until they totally give themselves to you. They open up and they receive the love and mercy that you have for them that they too might have genuine faith that saves their souls. In Christ's name, amen.